You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. My name is Bap Myung, and in English, it's Julie Pham, and I have my own company called Curiosity Base, which fosters curiosity in the world starting in the workplace because that is where we spend most of our waking hours. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you these days? Hustler. I love, one of the things I really love about our Vietnamese community is I just feel we're very entrepreneurial and problem solvers and resourceful and resilient. And so I think of uh, hustlers. I agree with you. I, I think that uh, we, in Vietnam today, you could see it all over. You know, we, we hear about us uh, here in the U.S. being um, a, a country of, of small business people. Uh, the, the engine of, of our economy is uh, small business. But when you go to Vietnam, you see that even more so everywhere, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, all the street vendors. All the, all the little shops where you're selling the same thing as the person next to you. And it's just that difference of, of the relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I think about people who start newspapers, I think of uh, people who are academic, who are brilliant, people who in Vietnam come from that world and then they come here in the, to the United States. Is that what, what happened in your family? Well, my uh, my father was in the the South Vietnamese Navy as a journalist, so he was in the press corps. So he did have a bit of that um, uh, training um, in that because of the aptitude when he was in Vietnam. When he when my parents came here, we came as boat people. I was a two month old baby. This was seventy nine. Um, they my my parents worked all these odd jobs. I my mom got really busy with having. I have two younger brothers who were born um, in Tacoma, Washington. And um, the, oh, after, after being here for several years, they were just, they were seeing the, the growth of the, the Vietnamese community. And also my dad was just tired of working for someone else. And he, did, he said that he really felt that he had to kind of do heads down. He eventually became an engineer and he felt that there was a lot of resentment against refugees and at the same time, the Vietnamese community was growing here in Seattle. And one of his best friends, Phạm Quốc Bao, who's in um, Orange County, who's part of um, creating Người Viet uh, Daily. And so it was just like, hey, what if, what if we create a newspaper to serve our growing Vietnamese community? And so what that year was that? My parents, uh, 1986. Okay. And actually what happened then, I guess, was um, Người Viet had actually wanted to expand. They were doing really well. And so they put in some uh, startup money, some loans to um, to different cities. And Seattle was actually the only one that survived. So we're in the Tây Bắc. 
So Vietnamese people of the Pacific Northwest. The, do you know how many uh, Vietnamese are living in that area or living in know? Washington or living yes, in... for, for your uh, circulation? Like how many people live in that area? So there Vietnamese are people. So uh, last census count, there are about uh, 70,000 in Washington. Um, I mean, some estimates would be 100,000. So and in the in the immediate um, Seattle area, I'm actually I'm not quite sure. I can't remember. But I will say this, it is the third largest Asian community in Washington. And for quite a while, it was, there was more Vietnamese spoken than, um, than Spanish in Seattle proper. And we know this because in the 2010 census, you have mm -hmm. to determine which uh, voting material gets translated and it's a threshold of by language. So, um, so that was the case in 2010. And the Vietnamese community is, is pretty big in Seattle. I wonder when your father and mother started out, did they have a sort of a number crunching formula to figure out if something like a newspaper is a viable thing? I don't think it was that sophisticated, Kenneth. <laughs> I think it was, hey, there are lots of uh, there are lots of Vietnamese here. And also there was at the, uh, just before that, there had been a state-sponsored Vietnamese newspaper. And when I say state-sponsored, it was it was sponsored by uh, Washington state and they closed down. And so I think they they closed down maybe one or two years before my parents started in the Viet Tây Bắc. And, um, and so it was like, well, there's a need. And there was, they could see this growth of of the of the newspaper industry down in Southern California, so so it's like let's just try this, and they had the support of of Lydiet too. So you grew up in the business. Uh, I've always wanted to know what the infrastructure for these organizations were because, you know, uh, we're we're gonna lose this story. We're gonna lose this sort of background of how these things actually function. You know, we hear about the newspaper industry folding and you know hard print going away, but Maybe you and I can talk about that. And and because mm -hmm. you were in the inside growing up, I think you were, you know, like a, a child when this was going on and you grew up in it. And looking back, probably, you know, the infrastructure. And so I have a lot of questions that just for my own, mm -hmm. obviously, I do this for my own satisfaction. Mm -hmm. I want to know how these things work, um, because the online uh, digital formats of news has shifted uh, and we're quickly losing the way these things were were done. So my, yeah, go ahead. So just relationships. I mean, the advertisers are a lot of people who uh, my parents met and then also all the word of mouth. And I remember growing up where it was these, uh, that you do typesetting by printing out paper and then there'd be these big uh, laminate um, sheets and we would have to uh, print out, use exacto knife, roll it on with wax. Then they would photo. You take it to the printers and you'd photograph it. And then you would. Uh, we like there were these big printers um, that would print the other local newspapers. And I remember uh, in 2007, I worked at the newspaper to help with the transition. That was actually my first time. It was for six months where I worked there full time. And it was between, it was in the middle of my, uh, middle of my PhD program. And up to that point, my parents were still using that typeset system, even though at that point, a lot of newspapers had transitioned to, um, to PDF 
sending PDFs and printing from there. And so I want you to imagine on Thursday night, we'd have these big laminate sheets and you'd have to put it in a black suitcase, this big black portfolio suitcase. Mm -hmm. And then my, it would be my brother who had been working at the newspaper since college. He would drive it up to the printer. And then Friday morning, the, the delivery people would go to the printers and they would pick up the newspapers. And someone was always responsible for that big black suitcase to pick that up. And I remember when I was uh, project managing the transition from doing this one way of layout to as doing it by sending PDFs just on the computer. We didn't have to drive. And that morning, it's like, where's the black suitcase? Where's the black suitcase? And we realized we don't, we oh. didn't typeset that way. We didn't do it that way. And it was just such a, it was just, wow, here's the change. So, mm. so what I, year and was that, that? that was 2007. So that was wow. actually, and so you, you think about um, those first movers and how they set up this infrastructure and yet they can be the ones, the, the last to transition. <laughs> and, and that was the case because there were other Vietnamese newspapers that, um, that, that sprouted up and that were using, that were much more sophisticated in terms of um, the way that they would lay out the newspaper. They were, they just came later. And so it was easier for them to make that transition. And for um, my family, it was just like, oh, it's so hard for change. So that was, that's one example. No, no, when you say type, uh, set because um, I think about like I think it's the word is the Gutenberg or the the old presses of when it first started out they were like literally putting like the alphabet oh yeah in, no right? I might be using the wrong term but basically it'd be like imagine printing it out on just a laser printer and then uh, and then using and then rolling it on with wax onto this big laminate sheet and then when you take it to the printers they photograph it and they create these films got it and then from the films. They make plates. They make plates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went to high school for printing, mm. you know, yeah. uh, so I had to run four color presses and, you know, work out the ink and the, there's like all of these different formulas. I, I know, I remember nothing about it, but it, it always fascinated me. How, how many people were part of the operation from A to Z? So there were, um, so um, my parents and then um Two of my dad's friends from re-education camp came in the mid '80s, and they—no, actually, I think it was the early '90s. And so one became the news editor, and the other one became the graphics editor, and they were the longest, uh, longest employees. And um, uh, Nguyen Van Hoa still works there; <laughs> he's still the news editor. What a and, name! <laughs> and and so uh, and then there are people who are just like in and out. My dad took actually a lot of pride in employing people and and kind of just providing this temporary employment while they were going through school or mm. then they were starting their businesses so it would often be like oh you know the person who owns Vun produce who used to deliver newspapers or this per like all these Boeing engineers they used to work here and so it was fine that it was kind of like temporary um and then there was the core team and so my mom in the beginning years would take care of the business side and now um for the past 12 years um we have a really uh, great employee um uh, Dong Fung Lei, who, who's been instrumental to, to helping uh, with the newspaper. So in terms of, in terms of the core non-family, there are just two to three people. And then there's the family members. And my brother, Andy, still helps out, has been working there since he was in college. 
Um, I always tease him that he learned his Vietnamese through selling Rao but through selling mm. classified um, ads. And um, because they just put him in the front desk and said, you're selling. And that's how he learned his Vietnamese. Wow. And my youngest brother, Don, for a while was working as a photographer. And I worked there for, uh, for, for three years. What an amazing business. But as I say that, I understand that just because we think it's an amazing childhood, that's not often the case with kids that grow up in these businesses, right? It was really hard. I mean, it was, there was a lot of pride because people, people knew my parents. You're just like, oh, because sometimes the Seattle Times would write articles. Um, and, but it was really, it was really hard. I mean, I, I never, I like rarely saw my parents. So growing up, I actually didn't speak Vietnamese. So I spoke Vietnamese until I was five and entered school. And then, um, and I was a total latchkey kid though, because my parents were always at the newspaper. And so we were often at the newspaper when we were, when we were in elementary school, we'd, we'd sell um, those school fundraisers. I remember selling chocolate yeah. bunnies and, um, out from the front desk of that. And, um, and then there were just lots of events that my parents needed to, to go to. Um, and so I think as I were in high school, I appreciated more. I, I was in the school newspaper myself and, um, and then yes, there's later on, I, I appreciate it. And I will say though, the, when I came back to Seattle in 2008, and that's when I started working full-time for the newspaper, it was really hard. I mean, it was the worldwide recession. It was the decline of print newspapers. Seattle used to have two dailies, went down to one daily. Mm. And, um, and it was just, it was, it was really, it was really hard. And I also learned how to do, there was a Vietnamese way of doing business, which is much more flexible. And I'd come in with all of these, what do you mean? You have to bill people and they pay you. Well, not yet. It's like, but this bill is outstanding for like over a year. <laughs> and, um, and so I actually instituted a barter system. I was very much like these need, bills need to get paid. And if I, if I get gift certificates for spa services, that's okay. Like, what can we do? And I would even sometimes do like three-way, like, oh, you need this service. I need this service. I will barter their services for this service I need <laughs> just to get, to get bills paid and to get services. So I think when I talked about resourcefulness, scrappiness, there's a lot of that I, I learned from the newspaper. It's so crazy. These visuals that I, I, I have them when I, when, you know, when I saw you online, your online persona, you look like an academic, you know, um, somebody who's spent their entire life in, you know, and studied things to hear that story that you just told about the three-way bartering that is some like far out shit. <laughs> yes, it was someone I wanted an accountant to help me and he needed print services. He wasn't even Vietnamese, actually. He needed printing. He was starting his own a new business. And, and so I traded advertising for printing, which then that printing was to was for the accountant who would then give me services. <laughs> so it just goes to show, you know, we, we, when we look at people, we have these like judgments and we think that we, you know, based on what we read, we think we know, but, and I think doing this work for me always allows me to expand my brain a little bit more about like what you think of people. When we sit down and we start hearing these things about human beings and how, how much hustle somebody might have, even though they're like academically heavy. Right. I mean, 
Oh, no, there was like, I mean, I came back to Seattle after I finished my PhD. I came back to Seattle to get my real life MBA. And, (laughs) you know, and that was because it was like, well, um, and I'd actually for a while thought, should I go back and get an MBA? My dad was like, you're too old. And I was true. I was like, I spent all of my 20s getting my PhD. I was like, no, I'm not going to go back to school. And, and, and it was, I learned so much from running a Vietnamese newspaper during the recession. (laughs) And I learned about partnerships and, and how to, um, how to, how to be scrappy and how to, um, how to do more with less and how to, how to partner with actually other um, ethnic media. And by that, I mean, uh, media organizations that serve immigrant, refugee, BIPOC communities. I mean, one of the other things we did was we partnered with a Hispanic distributor um, so they could take us to Eastern Washington. Because actually my brother and I ended up buying half the newspaper from our parents. My parents had two editions, a Tuesday edition and a, a Friday edition. And so for that first year of working at the newspaper, I was just exhausted all the time. And, and, and we had like, oh, if we could do things our way. And so we actually decided to our parents had a uh, about $30,000 worth of debt. And we said, let's buy out their debt. And we put my car, brother's car as collateral. I Googled how to write a business plan. We were able to borrow money from a, from a community um, development fund. And we then ran the newspaper. And, and one of the things we did was we quadrupled the distribution area. And we did that because we partnered with a Hispanic distributor because that's where the the Hispanic community in Washington is mostly in Eastern Washington, which is where the mm. farming is. And so doing things like that, like getting really creative. And they were super excited because they we were their first non-Spanish newspaper to distribute. And was it always in Vietnamese? Yeah, the newspaper has always been in Vietnamese. It's primarily in Vietnamese. Every It'd only be when I would write something in English that would also be translated in Vietnamese where we would run it in um, in English because this is a newspaper that that serves primarily the, the, the Vietnamese, Vietnamese readers. And there are other pan-Asian newspapers. Um, and also actually we have, there's some youth, um, youth-led Vietnamese uh, media that's in English too. Now, how many writers do you need to have for a newspaper of this size? And how often do you have to get out articles and, you know, ideas or how does this work where you get the content packaged? So there's, um, I'd say that there's three different types of content. So there's general news content. And so we have a relationship with the Viet newspaper, which has um, their own license and translations for all the like the AP stuff. So there's that. There's just general world news, national news. That's not original. Um, and then there is the, there's community news. And so that's, hey, there's a grand opening of a windows covering company, or here's a, of a, of a supermarket, or here's the, the Tet uh, festival, and here's the Catholic one, here's the Buddhist one, right? And yeah. so that would be, uh, my dad did that a lot. And also people would just send in information too. And oftentimes it's just like, take a picture with a long caption, or yeah. like long stories. Um, and then there'd be the feature pieces, and that would usually be guest contributors and, and and so that was that was more rare. I would sometimes write that we'd have people who just really want to get their work out, and so we would accept their contributions. 
Um, and then um, we were fortunate a few years ago to get a, a Facebook grant that also allowed us to do some really great coverage. Mm. Um, so, I mean, in terms of that kind of coverage, it was more volunteer because we, we don't have the resources to do that kind of original, um, that original coverage. And then also when I was organizing um, ethnic media, we'd also trade with even other local newspapers and we just say we're going to translate your content into Vietnamese it's relevant to our community and we'll translate it and so that was another thing too there'd sometimes be just press releases from uh com community organizations it was like we're just going to translate this we don't have the resources to write something original that's brilliant now um in terms of picking a a side a political side is that something that internally these camps like your family would say, oh, okay, well, um, you know, things are getting polarized. Let's pick a side to go. Like, let's naturally lean this way or that way. Does that happen or not? Oh, yes. And I mean, this is an overseas Vietnamese newspaper, right? <laughs> so it is going to have a natural anti-communist bent. And it's kind of, well, how anti-communist is it going to right. be? Right. And so I would say my, my dad was always just about like, we were staying moderate and moderate is relative right i mean moderate is is it's still anti-communist <laughs> so um i i remember here's an example when uh it was 2000 it was 2009 and there was a big case in olympia of defamation where there were some vietnamese who um accused some other vietnamese members of, of being communists of or like you are you are a communist, right? And I mean, they're all anti-communist and they're just kind of accusing each other of communism. And um, and this had hit the national newspapers. And, and I remember telling my dad, we need to cover this because if these American newspapers are covering it, we need to cover it. And my dad was actually quite hesitant. He's like, oh, oh I don't want to get into it. And so I said, well, we need to cover it. And so I actually went, my, my dad made the introductions and we went down to Olympia and I went with my brother and we actually interviewed both sides. And um, we're really proud of the fact that both sides were happy with the coverage. And so, and actually we have that in Vietnamese with English subtitles. So Kenneth, I'll send that to you so you can put in your show okay. notes. Um, because it's actually like a, I think it's a really a interesting way to think about Vietnamese American mm -hmm. politics and dynamics of our community. Um, because it's really a sense of, I mean, it's a sense of loss, right? People have here, they're, they still want to fight for something um, to feel that they're still fighting against communism. And sometimes what that means is fighting within our own community. Yeah. Did you guys have training, like journalist background training to go down and, and do that? Or is it just like family sort of just osmosis being around it? Uh, not, I mean, I was in, I was the editor in chief of the high school newspaper. So, and, um, and I wrote a little bit for the college newspaper. No, I mean, I think it's, I'm trained as a historian. So asking questions, it comes, it's, it's part of, it's part of what I do. Um, and so, but there's not any, I mean, I'm not, I didn't go to school for journalism. So, so you go down there and you collect, you know, all these angles uh, with your brother, right? Mm -hmm. And you bring it back and you sit with your father and you sit at a table, discuss it. And who writes up the piece? So I wrote up the piece and my father translated it. So, um, but you know, we, I mean, we'd listen to it together. It's like, Hey, these are the parts that are 
uh, that are going to work. I mean, it's a the piece I think is maybe like five minutes or something like that. So, you know, whenever you do something, we were working with SBTN at the time. Mm -hmm. So we were the Seattle affiliate. And so it also went into, um, it also uh, was not went national there. And so it's just, but it was a discussion of what is going to be, um, what's going to be what we should put up. Something else that was controversial was one of the things in that particular case was the, the person who was being accused of being a communist, he had one of the, he had a red apron. It was a Christmas apron with a, with a gold star. And so the people who were accusing him were like, that's a sign that he's a communist. And so I remember debating back and forth with my dad, should we put this on the newspaper? And I was like, I really think we need to put this on the newspaper so people can know for themselves what's, what's this about. And so, and he was, I mean, he was, he was pretty worried about it. We put on the newspaper and it was actually okay. You know, he, he was worried like are people going to accuse us of being secretly yeah. communists. Mm -hmm. God, these things are so trivial now looking back, but people's lives depended oh, yeah. on this stuff. We look and back and we're like, we're like having a conversation. Trivial is, is even relative, right? Because it's important yeah. to, it's important to our community. It's part of our, it's part of our identity to be anti-communist of this overseas um, uh, Vietnamese refugee community. And yet, what does that, what mean. does that yeah. mean? What does Oops. that look like? Is it, is this truly a sign of communism? Yeah. So, and we're, we're like smirking about it as we're, as you're telling the story, it, it it's like, it's such a, a funny, it's a small thing, like the apron and the gold stuff, but these were people's lives and had to go to American court to figure this out mm -hmm. i mean it's it's, it, it's life-changing for human beings to you know these semiotic uh symbols that people have to kind of assign their identity to is like a big thing mm -hmm. i kind of hate it i kind of hate it i kind of uh, i'm fascinated hate it. by it yeah I, I don't it's it's not a i'm just i think it's i think it's really interesting yeah I hate how it affects our, our lives in such negative ways, right? Because this this guy, okay, let me ask you, this guy that was wearing this apron, he is saying that he's not communist or what, like, what what, what was the oh, story? Oh, yeah, and he's actually a, a very, he's the father of a very dear friend of mine. And he was, he actually was an officer in the South Vietnamese military. He taught a, he was teaching a, a Vietnamese school, who's like a real pillar of the community. He, um uh, down in Olympia. And I mean, then these are, and he was accused of communism because there's by other Vietnamese. And this is what kills me. It, it breaks my heart to know that this happened many years ago. And it really gets people to the point where you have to go to court to like figure this out and, and you got to unscrew it. It was, I mean, I remember I was asked to organize a meeting with the um, American ambassador to Vietnam. He was in town. And so I organized something with 30 Vietnamese American leaders. And, um, and my email, I, I sent out an email invitation. And even that was another newspaper published my email. So I guess that somehow they got the email and it was it was read in this, oh, look at this organizing meeting with the American ambassador to Vietnam and um, put through a, uh, is this supporting communist, um, communism lens. 
Yeah. So a lot of things can be read. And that, I mean, that was exhausting too. Cause it was like, oh my gosh, really? Like, are we, is this, is this what we're um, uh, arguing about? And yet I just have to keep remembering this is important to people. This is important to not, not everyone. This is important to some people and, and to dig in like, why is that? Like what's going on that they, that this is the thing that they hold so dear. You know, when my family left in 75, uh, I remember growing up, um, you know, must've been five. I mean, I was born in the States. They left in 75, but I must've been five or seven before I even had any recollection of my mom and dad reconnecting with the, with the, with the family back in, in Vietnam. And I always think back to the fact that there was like no connection and whatever connecting there was, it was very expensive. But when I've studied about this, like the lifting of the embargo and the history of, you know, the pullout of the American troops, not more than I think six weeks into April 30th. So by May or mid-June, the Vietnamese government was reaching out to the United States and they were trying to make deals. And there's this sort of like connective tissue that happens in history where these things are happening, but the people that it's affecting have no idea. Like, you know, people like my parents probably thought that that was it. The government, the, the new government of Vietnam has nothing to do with the, the, the U.S. But in actuality, there's like all of this like communication that's still happening. And mm-hmm. one side's trying to persuade the other. And it's just a constant back and forth. It doesn't end. And we on the society in general uh, uh, on the on the as as civilians we think that there is meaning behind certain things where in actuality we just go on living and then holding this like resentment and holding this hate for things that that are not even they're i i feel like sometimes they're just not rooted in 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 like a real reality well, I mean, kind of this is the world we're living in right now, right? Yeah. We have all these conversations around misinformation and disinformation and what is true and what is not true. And I mean, that's one of the things that actually really drew me to Vietnamese history, to studying Vietnamese history, because it is such a, it's the perspectives are so different and they yeah. are side by side right now. I mean, when I was in college, I got really drawn to studying and I would, when I was studying about the, the Vietnam War. It's like, wait a minute, hmm, where's, um, and I would tell my dad what I was learning. And he was, he was just, you know, the South Vietnamese aren't covered in that. Like they're not included. I'm like, what do you mean? And so that was actually the, um, my, my research in college, I ended up interviewing 40 South Vietnamese veterans about their perspective of the war. And I wanted to do it through a lens of not about winners and losers, because yeah. I feel like that's like, that's the, um, how, his American histories are often written. Um, Cause even if you think about Americans, Oh yes, we lost and we shouldn't have been there. It's still so American centric. You're right. Right. And it's just like, there are 2 million Vietnamese living in the U S and people still tell me, I'm so sorry what we did to your country. And it's like, you know, that we were fighting on the same side, right? Yeah. Like you were actually, you were actually our ally. <laughs> so, um, and in any case, I just want to give you an example of that side by side history um, the different perspectives. When I was living in Vietnam, the last time I lived there for a long time, that was um, 2008. And 
um, Jen's um, journey from the fall had just come out a couple of years ago and I got to see it when I was in Berkeley and it was like, super exciting. And, you know, it was, uh, I love the film. My, my mom thought it was really accurate of the boat people journey. And, and so I showed it in Hanoi. I was living in Hanoi at the time and I'd had these monthly uh, movie salons uh, and, and I remember when the light turned on, my Hanoian friends, their faces were just shocked because they were just like, that's not the history I know. Re-education camp was not like a prison camp or a labor camp. That's not what I was taught. And it was so, I mean, just to see their faces, mm. right? And, and yet there were thousands of people who went through that, who could say, no, that's what it was like. Um, and, and that just, just shows like there are multiple truths, right? And so like what we see in the US, like this super anti-communist view, I think also isn't, isn't totally accurate. No. And so, and so it's not about, I, I don't think it's about getting to one truth. I think it's about accepting that there are multiple truths and, yeah. and it's because it's so, it reflects how we see the world. And that's, um, and that's why I think Vietnamese history is super fascinating. I've spoken to people in France, um, communists that were communists before the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. Students that were uh, Vietnamese students in France. Uh, and they were in their teens when they got to, to Paris to study. Parents sent them, they got scholarships, and they converted into this sort of like, you know, this communist state of thinking. And they, along with other people in Hanoi that I've talked to just randomly, a lot of people have said, you know, uh, I got out of the party because I didn't like the way that um, the camps were conducted. Mm -hmm. And for me to hear that, you know, doing these interviews, it, it's a shock to my system because I was like, wait, it's either you're, you're, you're a communist and you're, you're, you're locking people up or you're a, a prisoner of that system and you're trying to get out of it and you're, you're scarred from it. But I didn't know that there was like, there's multiple gradients of in between people who were communists who don't agree and, you know, left the party and got back into the party. Uh, and they were upset that this was happening inside their own country at the time. And there's people who were really standing up against that whole thing because they're like, wait a minute, we're trying to get like the deal to happen here and locking people up this way is not humane. So there's people on the ground in Vietnam at the time that were, um, I don't know, Vietnamese call it sangsut, right? Like they were aware enough to, mm -hmm. to say, you know, we got to stop this. This is not the right way to do things. So there, it's society. And then it's like all of this stuff is, is happening in real time, but there's also people I've uncles who did 13 years and, you know, that's a reality. And they, I've heard it with my own ears, the, the, the difficulty of the life that they lived in there. And I will say that when I was doing that, um, my undergrad thesis, I would see a difference of how the war was remembered based on how long someone spent in re-education camp. Yeah. Right. Like the level of bitterness, if you are going to spend years oh my God. is, is, and of course, that's how you'll remember things. I talk about this all the time. I, I just literally talking to another guest about this. Uh, Brian Huang is an artist. I was, 
I was saying that there's levels to all of this. It, literally what I said was there's a three-year guy, there's a six-year guy, there's mm-hmm. the 12-year guy, and then there's like the ultimate 17-year guy. Mm-hmm. And there's levels to all of it because if you have friends that died in front of you, you're holding their body, that affects you a certain way. There's the guy who did six years and then like tried to escape and he got caught in the ocean like four times. He's pissed. And then there was like my dad, the guy who left a week before, like all of it went down. And he'd been trying to get all the big guys in his family, all the uncles who are like lieutenant colonels and generals. And at the at a certain level, he was sending out the proverbial pigeons to all these guys mm-hmm. like, yo, like I got a boat ready to go. You get none of them said, oh, my God, great idea. They all said, if you get caught, we are not bailing you out. So <laughs> so then now a guy like that, like my dad raises a guy like me. So I'm like this rebel and I'm thinking what's the big deal guys. And, but now I understand, no, 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 no. There's, there's a, oh, there's this so conversation. That's how we remember things. Yeah. And you know, I think what's so fascinating is Americans don't know about re-education camps. Like what? I was like, yes. So many people were sent to re-education camps after the war ended. So let me ask you something. Um, being on the academic side of history, being inside of a news organization, um, and you're seeing sort of the way society is so polarized because of, and I bring this up all the time, because of algorithms. Are we ever going to get free from this? And, and I ask this because I keep thinking that these long form conversations, even if 10 people are listening or a thousand people, if we are able to kind of break it down and you know, we're stretching out kind of like time and we're like piecing together like elements of like things that happen. Do you think we're going to ever heal or we're going to be able to like love each other from a, a a point of a place where things are much more nuanced and we can be like, okay, it's not black and white. Uh, we can therefore exist in places where we're just more understanding to each other. Do you think that's possible or do you think based on what you've learned in your academic journey as a historian that that we're not going to be afforded that luxury. I don't, I, I am actually pretty cynical yeah. um, and not because of my history background, but actually because of my work in technology and just the personalization of all these algorithms and we're only getting delivered what we already clicked on and what our, what our friends like. And so, um, so if you're consuming a lot of technology, then that's then we're going to have that delivered to us. And so and I think the anecdote to that is actually relationship building. Because I am much more likely to change my mind when I have a conversation with someone who I trust, who shares something that mm. maybe I might not I might not believe if I just read it. But because it's coming from a trusted source and someone who I care for and care about, like I'm much more likely to change my mind. Um, I think actually what I'm seeing is there's, we don't know how to have difficult conversations though. Mm. Why? And Why don't we, we know? don't know how to have difficult conversations because I, I think there is so much like, let's talk about these big topics. It's like, actually, can we start with the small stuff? Can we start with, no, I don't want to give money to your son's fundraiser <laughs> like, or mm-hmm. no, I don't want to go to that party. We don't even know how to talk about like, the small stuff. And so how are we going to talk about the, the big stuff? 
And so then the people who are able to talk about the big stuff are doing it really very kind of hostile way. And mm-hmm. then other people are watching that and they're just, ooh, I don't want to get involved. So I'm going to be quiet. And so it ends up, there's this, the, the people who are really vocal get louder and the people who are still thinking and processing get quieter. And so I think that's actually the, the divide, like those who are going to say something, those who aren't. And then, and then that space is filled with people who are, who are willing to be vocal on both sides, on, on all sides. That's a really good point, Julie. It's a really, really good point. And I think culturally there's different, um, there's different spectrums as you go from culture to culture. And I think like, for example, I think Americans, depending on what state you and what city you live in, has a muscle that can do the debates that can get to the hard, you know, it's like cleaning an oven. There's like spots where it's like really difficult and you have to put like a lot of elbow grease and you got to really like scrub. And then there's, you know, places in the United States where you can't remove that stain. It's just that it's impossible to have a, a conversation. Vietnamese people have, um, I think it doesn't, you know, lend itself. It, the way we're structured, I think, with the GEM, Bak Ju, Gong, that kind of hierarchical way of speaking to each other provides some context for respect. But I mean, when it comes to like getting down to the debates or, or having a conversation inside of our family, it's a lot harder to have them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think any conversation is hard to have if you go in wanting to change someone else's mind and you're not willing to have your own yeah. mind changed. Right. So <laughs> think about that. Yeah. I'm it thinking about hard. it right now. Yeah, it feels hard <laughs> if it's like, yeah, I want to change your mind. <laughs> but if, if for me to go into a conversation where this is going to be, um, I, I think a lot about reciprocity and it just, I can be curious about other people. I have to let other people be curious mm. about me. There has to be this back and forth for, for them to learn. I have to be willing to learn for them to change. I have to be willing to change. That's hard as hell. Yes. Yes. And so we can't, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'm in a very blue, deep blue part of the U S right. And there are all these times, there are all these assumptions about just, um, um, about the bad Republicans or the bad mm-hmm. right side. And, and it's just, and I mean, I often feel conservative when I'm actually moderate, <laughs> but it's just the spectrum that we're in. And so, and it's just like, it's just, where is, wherever you are, like, what's that range? What's that spectrum? And um, is it like, like, I'd actually really love to spend some time in a purple state because they, I think that muscle you're talking about is probably much stronger because they constantly do have to um, debate that. And it's, and it's relative. I mean, my, my work around respect is, is about how respect is relative. Like one person can see it this way. Another person can see the same behavior another way. Um, Yeah. I was going to transition into the, the book and you did a perfect job of transitioning into it. Can, can we talk about the title of the book? Yeah, the title is called Seven Forms of Respect, and the subtitle is A Guide to Transforming Your Communication and Relationships at Work, Um, and it's, it's based on, well, it's based on my personal 
lived experience. It's based on my community building experience and it's also based on research. So my personal experience is growing up bicultural. And, and I learned Vietnamese actually after I, I started studying Vietnamese after I graduated from college. Wow. And then and then living in the UK and France, Germany and in Vietnam um, and just having these experiences like, wow, respect can look different. The way we treat each other can be different. Um, and then there is community building because once I got back to Seattle, after I finished my PhD, I started doing a lot of uh, community organizing and bringing together people from very diverse backgrounds. I mean, one, you know, I told you the coalition of ethnic media, right? Just very diverse backgrounds and how they how they wanted to be treated was different and that create friction because we'd have different expectations. And then um, over the past few years, I started to go uh, deep in this research and I ended up doing focus groups and workshops and interviews and questionnaires and assessments with about 400 people. That That's like in this, that's what this book is based on. Um, and there I focus on the workplace. How do people want to be treated and uh, want to treat others in the workplace? And the word respect came up a lot. So that's why it's um, that's why it's these forms of respect. It's and I always tell people I'm not going to teach you how to be respectful. You already know how to be respectful. It's just your idea of respect may be different from someone else's. So, yeah. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. I love it. I think that um, we are, as a society, we're slipping away from time spent together, like having FaceTime, I mean, literal FaceTime, not digital, like Apple, you know, iPhone FaceTime, like real FaceTime. We, we don't spend it. We don't. Uh, and, and you see it when uh, you spend time with with families, you know, the kids are on the iPad and I'm a parent, so it's hard. I understand respect is not even in the, it's not even in the formula or it's not even in the, the dialogue anymore, because I, I feel like we're just so disconnected as human beings today I, I, that there's not even a chance to even like practice this respect on the dojo floor. There's no, we can't even get together on the mat. To, to, to go over because there's no there's less there's less uh, connecting well and i think that people want to make snap judgments yes right and so it's just oh they did this thing they're being disrespectful and then but i'm not going to say anything so i'm just going to harbor that resentment kind of going back to my earlier point about we it can be hard for us to talk about what we we can be hard to talk about the small hard things not even yeah. let's not even talk about like the big hard things that's and um and and so it's kind of actually i mean a lot of my work focuses on increasing self-awareness building relationships and communicating clearly and so the first part is like i have to be curious about myself like why do i care about and do what i do 
Yeah. Why do I, how do I even think about respect in the ways that I do? I mean, just think about us growing up and we're, you got to call this person back and you got to call this person go. And this is the way that you show respect. And this is actually, you know, in the, um, in the U S kids are taught to bow, right? Like we're, and I remember, um, uh, having some Hanoian friends over and they had kids and they didn't, their kids didn't bow. And it was like, Hey, your kid's rude. <laughs> right. And, and they're like, here's the thing. Like, we don't do that in the North <laughs> and, or at least like maybe now, I don't know if that was in the back. Right. And it's just like, we don't teach our kids to do this little bow. And yet here we are, even though me and my friends were like, haven't lived in, didn't grow up in Vietnam. And yet we're feeling like your kids are disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Right. And here they are. They, these are Vietnamese kids. Yeah. And it's jarring, right. When they don't do it for a visit. And, and so that gets at the heart of like just different expectations. And I don't think we're willing to slow down and ask, Oh, what is my expectation? Yeah. And what is their expectation and how that's oftentimes not going to align. What has, um, what is your relationship with your, um, family, uh, look like, uh, I, I, you, you mentioned your father passed away, right? But, you know, uh, your brothers, your mom, I mean, do you still have to struggle with all this stuff, even though you know this stuff very well? So you mean struggle with the, the internal tough conversations? Dy- well, dynamics, I'm, yeah. Well, I mean, I have uh, my two younger brothers. I mean, we are all, I'm, I'm grateful that we are, um, we are close in that, I mean, actually right now I'm living with my two younger brothers. I never thought I'd be living with my brothers as adults. Um, but we don't, it's not like we talk all the time and have these deep, meaningful conversations. I would not have this conversation with my brothers, Kenneth. <laughs> right. <laughs> and at the same time, thank you. And at the same time, we're not fighting about things. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, when my father passed, we didn't fight about how to do things. And, and, um, and so it's, it's, uh, I think it shows that relationships can be really different depending on are they personal, are they family, is it work, is it, um, and 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 also the nature of the person. They're they're they're. I mean, both of my brothers are are um, just more soft spoken, and um, and so yeah. My mom has different interests, so we our conversations are are different uh, like we just have our conversations are much more limited um like I wouldn't have this conversation with her so what why not um she's just not as as interested in having these kinds of conversations so um and and you know there's there's we also have different views and I respect her views and I don't always know if she respects mine though. <laughs> so, yeah. you know what I said about people wanting to change others. So. Yeah, and and I think that's a, a sort of a blind spot of people of that generation. You know, I wonder if my kids will look at me that way too. You know, I think about that often. How these it's, young people. Yeah. It's natural. Yeah. It's natural. That's going to happen. <laughs> but I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person who my kids are like, 
you know, what you just described about your mom. I, I don't want to be described like that by my kids or in any of the young kids that work for me, the 22 year old. I want them to be like, that guy has more elasticity in the way he looks at things than I do. And I, I that would be a badge of honor for me. Right. My friend just gave me some really good advice last night. And she said she realized like her mom, her mom's behavior doesn't change. It's how she feels about it changes. And so she started to pick up, oh, I feel better when we're in person versus when we're on the Mm. phone. And so that's something I'm going to be doing, like, because how much of this is about me? And how would whatever my state of emotions are in my interactions? So God, you'd make an excellent therapist. I want to go back a little bit to uh, to the newspaper and this idea of like retaining because uh, I have this uh, one of my points in my questions. Mm-hmm. What, what, when I think about I got to go like way back mm-hmm. the American Indians. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think about like the Pacific Northwest and there, there's a rich tapestry of, of, of history of American Indians in that area. It's gone. Uh, we've I mean. Maybe there's some oral history that's been recorded out there and uh, it's been um, put out there. And, and there's all these romanticized versions of this, right? Um, and when I think about a romanticized version of history in the Pacific Northwest with Vietnamese community, uh, you're the last bastion of, 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 of recording and, and doing this, you and your brothers. And uh, it's gone after this, I think. I don't know, third generation, it's basically not going to continue. It's going to blend into some general American culture. Uh, you know, it's not going to be, uh, we're not going to be able to like extract like stories that like, if we think of like American Indians in that area, three, 400 years ago, like that's all gone. Um, I guess my question is like, as a historian and as somebody who has like this operations understanding of operations from a newspaper what where is this gonna where is our community and our culture gonna be in your pocket of the world um a hundred years from now i actually don't think it's gone i think it just changes so i think it just i think it changes it evolves how those stories get carried evolves uh, my friend Colleen Echohawk is the CEO of Eighth Generation, and they do they have um, traditional uh, um, Native American inspired um, goods, and and so sometimes she gets um, like, "Is this made in the traditional way?" And it's just like, "Well, I mean, we're it's Native made by Native Americans, and and things change, things evolve. Are we are we doing it in the exact way that our ancestors did it?" No, because we have technology now, right? And so, and I think that's also the case with these histories is I'm I'm so excited by what young people are doing and how they are carrying on Vietnamese traditions. I think that I'm there in in Seattle, there's friends of Little Saigon. Um, uh, They do really great work. They're a a nonprofit that does really great work to preserve our our culture. And they're doing it in a different way. Um, there's a park, there's an exhibit space, there's a cafe. And like, I love the way that they're doing it. So I wouldn't say that it's gone. I just say it's, it's evolved. All right. (laughs) I'm I'm listening going, well, the, the essence of the pain and the struggle and, and, and all of these stories that we're hearing and, and, and the exact way that we're hustling, all of that's like, 
going to get watered down, right? It's it's and and will we have a newspaper in the third generation, the that next iteration? Question, but Kenneth, that's a question that we've got to ask for all newspapers, not just of our own newspaper. Mm. I mean, all I mean, the Seattle Times is is hanging on because they're selling real estate, right? Like there's very there aren't that many print newspapers that are actually doing well. Like, and that's even, and you think about the, the, the resources that mainstream newspapers have. So, I mean, having organized and worked with a lot of different ethnic media, we're all kind of struggling. That's a big question, Mark, for not just, not just, um, not just for Nguyen Thai Bac. Um, it's, a, and for Nguyen Viet and for um, Viet Bao and for all the other newspapers, it's, it's a question of, as our culture and society changes, what are the um, mechanisms and what are the uh, the vehicles that are going to have to change to carry that culture out? And I, I and you know, as you were describing that, because I mean, we were talking about us fading, right? Things fade. Yeah. And I think about pain, like in grieving, and in the initial uh, days and months, there's an intense pain. And I'm feeling it. I'm feeling that pain. And what happens later on is all I will remember is I had that pain. I'll never feel it again. I just can't. That's just, it's just, yeah. I can't. And so that's all we have is we have the memories and then what people do with those memories. And if we will continue to um, revisit them and also seeing through whatever our lens is, because like right now, the lens is there's so much polarization. Yeah. And um, and so how does that what does that mean of how we look at our own history? Wow, this is such a complex uh, topic because the news business is predicated on this polarity. Right. It and it, and it, when, once it goes away, does that mean that we're all going to be one big Kumbaya tribe again? Or is there some different form of this? I I hope we don't. I hope it's not about we all see the same or we all agree. It's more that we all can agree to disagree. And that oh. there are more shades of it, right? Because like right now, it feels like there are some narratives that are very dominant, right? And yet we know that there are all of these, all of these um, shades in between. I have a friend who started a, media or uh, a newsletter here that's called evergrey and so you think like <laughs> in seattle it. it's like evergreen right and she calls it evergrey because there's so much nuance and i love oh my god i, lo I love that so what um, a terrific title yeah what a yeah terrific name. my friend uh, monica guzman and so you know it's just and so that's that's what i hope we have more of just the the um that nuance and the curiosity for that and the belief that just because we don't agree we don't have to win or lose it's not about winning or losing it's actually about learning we we had a place i mean every everybody has a place uh to kind of debate these things write about them think about them you're reading and you're processing them as you're reading news you're consuming uh, media and news once this sort of dies off where are we going to have a place? I mean, is it going to be social media where we just all over the place? Or is there a, a focal point for humanity um, to kind of like debate things? That's a really philosophical question, Kenneth. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, 
you started it yeah (laughs) no it's just like in the different platforms right so I mean who who knows what will happen in web three I don't even know when you know like this is things are being debated right now on social media who knows what that what where the new platforms will be and where that debate will take place and yet I do believe that the most the ones that where we are most likely to change our mind are going to be in person and are going to be small group and are going to feel where people feel safe. I mean, when I do, when I facilitate learning experiences, I actually really, um, I, I stress the, that it's so much more effective if we can do them in small groups of six, five or six to eight people. And because that's where, um, people feel safer. And even like groups of two, like even like letting people just like, hey, let's start off with a like a conversation with one other person so I can practice saying this and saying what I believe and and how did that person react? And um, because I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of fear. When, you know, going to your where will these debates take place or where will these conversations take place? Um, I mean, I think that there's always going to be a place for in-person conversations. And then where does it get amplified? I guess like here core conversation can take place in person and then they get amplified into these other yeah. um, other platforms. You know, when, when you're coming up in, in, you know, studying history and did you think that you would become a teacher um, in the university system or did you think that you were going to be a corporate trainer? I mean, where, what, what is the evolution of writing a book like uh, Seven Forms of Respect? What what's the what was the ultimate goal? And I guess what I'm asking is, what where did the journey for the inception of the idea come from? And then where did you think that it was going to take you in life? And why did you do it? You know, when I when I was in college, I thought I was going to be an academic, and because it was like, okay, I'm studying history, and then I went from straight from undergrad to grad. And, and it was just, this is the path. And, um, and academia, I think looked different back then too, because I graduated in 01. And, um, and then as I was doing my PhD, um, I mean, towards the end of it, I just realized like, this is not what I want to do. And then, so I had a very, um, I was able to be the, the first managing editor for the journal of Vietnamese studies. And, that was, and so I got to be, I was there for three years. And so I got to see the start of this, um, this journal and really get a front row seat in academia. Wait, I don't even know about this journal. I'm so sorry. Can you, yeah. So it's the is journal, that something we can talk about. Yeah. So the journal of Vietnamese studies started, gosh, I think it was 2006. It's an academic journal. It's published by UC press. Um, and it comes out, well, it came back out back then quarterly. I don't know how often it comes out now, but it, I mean, it's an academic peer reviewed journal um that's primarily i mean it's in it's in english and it's for those who study vietnam and who and how is it funded and how is it distributed what's the is there a business model be no i mean it's an academic it's an academic journal so universities buy it (laughs) and it's very it's a very niche market right because it's it's an academic journal okay and so there's this whole world of academic journals that you will never see on a newsstand. Mm. Um, and they are, and um, essays in them um, are long. They are researched and then you send it out for peer review, which means other 
other academics look at it and they're typically they're blind reviews, although it's hard to be blind in such a small field. You're just like, I know that this person is studying this, <laughs> right? I know you. <laughs> I know you. I know this research. I know this. Yeah. So um, but in any case, um, so yes, I, I, I got to uh, be its first managing editor and, um, and it was founded or the two lead professors, uh, Peter Zinneman from Berkeley and Miriam B.V. Lamb, who's at uh, UC Riverside. Miriam, the, you said? Two, hmm? Miriam, you said? Yeah, yeah. Miriam oh, B.V. Yeah, yeah. So they were oh the two God. lead editors, <laughs> two professors who who led this. And and so I'm, it, so yes, that's the, that's the journal. It's still going Gosh, on so, today. So <laughs> crazy. I know Miriam in such a, like, you know, in a social environment, 15 years ago, like we met and she's so laid back, Yeah, you know, yeah. just to hear her in this, <laughs> just to hear her in this conversation. I'm like, I can't imagine Miriam, yeah. like in this, you know, uh, managing or directing role. She's just so laid back and fun to be around. And she's such a, it's such a fun person. She's an academic though. <laughs> so, so, I mean, she's, you know, she's an academic and does really rich Serious. studies. So so that was getting that front row seat. And I realized I didn't want to stay in academia. Yeah. What I enjoyed was actually promoting the journal and learning how to do that business side and making recommendations of where was it going to go. And, um, and, and as I was finishing up my dissertation, I realized that I wanted to go into business and that I, wa I wanted to get my real life MBA and to come back to Seattle and to run the newspaper. And I didn't know for how long I also want to do that because as adults, we don't get to spend that much time with our yeah, parents. parents. And I wanted to know that no matter what I had that time and running a, being in a family business is very intense time. Everything revolves around the business. I mean, you, you know, this, mm -hmm. everything, every conversation comes back to the business. So um, for better or for worse. And yeah. when the parents pass on, you'd think, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I'm very thankful to have that, had that time. It was a sticky time uh, to be with my father. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And so then I was at the newspaper for three years and I just knew I was working with eight people. Half of them have the same last name as me. <laughs> I need to move to a bigger org. And, um, and so that's when I got into technology. And so I started working at a couple of tech companies and then I got recruited to um, do marketing at a nonprofit that represents the tech industry. And I ended up getting, I think it was my second real life PhD in organizational development because there, I think it was just like that research brain. And so as I was organizing, organ, I, I created a cross-sector collaboration fellowship, uh, bringing together people from tech government and community-based organizations. And I would just watch how they collaborated. And I would just like tweak things and try things again. And that's when I was just like, oh, the heart of this is curiosity. Mm. It's curiosity. That is, and curiosity is contagious. If you have some people who are curious on a team, they can actually uplift the morale because it becomes not about the outcome. It becomes about being together and learning together. Wow. That process, it's about the journey. And so that's why I was just, this is what I want to do. Um, and so I told told my dad middle of the pandemic, Hey, I'm going to leave, leave my nonprofit executive job and start this. And I was really worried about what he'd say. And he said, I'm so happy for you mm. because now you'll have freedom and you will never 
in the, in America, you can always lose your job. Now you will never lose your job because I went through a couple of, um, uh, uh, downsizings, uh, at the tech companies. So, and he told me, he, he hadn't told me that he was like, I cried when that happened. So, you know, and so then he was like, this is your, you're in control of your destiny. And I think about though, this is a newspaper that served entrepreneurs. It's like mm-hmm. serve other hustlers, right? It's like, we're going to make this happen. And it does feel my destiny is in my own hands now. So. I hate to be um, of the thinking that um, we Vietnamese Americans go back to Vietnam and we save the country because that's bullshit mm-hmm. now. But oh, yeah, my, so <laughs> to preface this next question is, well, do you ever think about like um, the the work that you've done can actually help? God, I hate that word. <laughs> can actually change and and inspire um, different ways of thinking in a country like Vietnam. I um, I hope that my work inspires not just in Vietnam. Just just it's about we belong to multiple cultures simultaneously and we are either following it or reacting in opposition to it. And so I hope that people who, um, I, I guess probably in the Vietnamese cases, they read it and they're like, Oh, this is how, this is how respect the different ways that respect can be seen in, um, in the U S if I go work in the U S um, if I interact with Americans, my idea of respect is not universal. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's the message. And I think that, I hope that applies to anyone anywhere. Um, so, so for example, I mean, you know, in Vietnam, right? Like, and it's, and I just remember being so frustrated. It's like, I couldn't figure out why my Vietnamese friends would cancel on me last minute. I was like, they must know, <laughs> they must know that, that something, is coming up and why didn't they tell me beforehand and so then I had a Hanoian friend who said oh they yeah they totally knew it's just like the reason why they told you last minute is because then it's an emergency and if they told you beforehand it would look like a choice <laughs> and the choice is not to be with you it's like oh my gosh right <laughs> and so maybe it will help those who are coming to the U.S. and it's like oh this is like perspective is relative and and how I see it might differ from how other people see it and at the same time though I want those who are in the U.S. to be like, oh, here are people who are coming, who are immigrants from other countries. And we're going to see the way that I want punctuality might not work for, they might not be giving to me, not because they're being disrespectful, but because culturally that's just not what they do. So I guess it's like, it's both ways. It's not a savior mentality. It's just, it goes back to like understanding one another. And, and it's, it's also moving beyond the what of like, what do I care about? It's actually the why. And mm-hmm. helping people go back and like, what are the stories yeah. around that? Um, so for example, my mom growing up, my mom was constantly late picking me up from school. I mean, you know, she's working all the time, but she's constantly late. And I felt a lot of shame because the school staff had to wait with me. And so she's like, when I grow up, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's my story. And like, you'll remember that much more than you'll remember punctuality. Right. And that's like, how do we connect over stories and how do we um, spark conversations and get um, curious about uh, about one another and, and understand that respect is not is 
respect is relative, it's subjective, and it's also contradictory. Yeah. I, I, I do want to go back to why are we in Vietnam, in, in our culture, so disrespectful with time, with each other's time? But it's this not is... disrespectful. It's relative. <laughs> They're not seeing it as... I mean, I think it's okay. Let's break this down. It's flexible. Okay, but it's because I don't think it's actually. I think it's (sighs) like with the seven forms of respect. It's more like which are the ones that are important to you and which are the ones Mm -hmm. that aren't. It's not about being all seven, and so it's just like, hey, that form of respect is actually not important to me. I just it's not a priority for me. It's about it's saying it that way. Hey, these are the ones I prioritize, and these are the ones that I'm ambivalent about, and these are the ones that actually I don't think are like that don't matter to me. Look, I'm going to make a generalization. When when you're in Vietnam and you make appointments, it is very, very rare that you show up on time. Everybody's doing it. It's 15, 20 minutes late. Mm -hmm. But okay, let's let's remove the, the, the word respect out of this. How does society function when there's that kind of non-precision happening when and you can be has, an hour it late has been functioning though <laughs> like it has been functioning <laughs> they're doing really well the economy's booming <laughs> so it has it has been functioning <laughs> and you know they could ask us the same they could ask americans the same thing of like why does it matter so much yeah why but i think it's so changing fixated? in the city i think it's changing in the city though like in saigon i think people are doing things a little bit differently, but it's still not the, it's not the precision that, that we're taught here in, in the West. And um, I, I, I'm going to just say it for, for the record. I think timing is, is very important, but just being on time is, is almost everything. Cause um, and, and it's not respect. It's just um, gears, right? Like when gears like have to function away, it's got to like click. And if it's not clicking with, this temporal metric then what do we you know how do you how do you get the precision down and and this but Kenneth that's because like you grew up in a place where time is really valued and and like if we were in Germany it'd be even more so more (laughs) I mean you know here it's just like oh the bus is late like there it's unacceptable I mean in a way where everything is on time and and like you don't even match that you don't delay the next one to if one is delayed and the next one is not, the next one will leave, right? It's not going to yeah. wait for that transfer. And, and that could be impractical too. It's like, that's a little too precise. Like you've just missed a transfer because of two minutes. Like you weren't waiting to, willing to wait two minutes or whatever, right? And so, um, and so, yeah, I like what I'm really interested in is, oh, it's different. Why is it different? What's that? What's that thinking behind it? Oh, you did mean to respect me, just not in the way that... Mm. I wanted it. And that's the, that's actually the point of the work is, is to, um, is to get it. Like, why? Yeah. I think this is going to change the fabric of, of, you know, anybody who reads it and who understands it um, will shift their thinking in how we deal with each other. Yeah. I hope it, cause you know, I think of, um, using the analogy of languages. So um, think about at a company and then within a company, there are different departments, right? There are different teams. And so company can have their national, um, they're at the high level. These are our preferred forms of respect. Like we are going to 
listen deeply to one another. So that's attention. We are going to give lots of praise. That's acknowledgement. Um, but you know, we're not going to, we're only going to give information on needs, need to know basis. We're not going to share information with everyone. So they don't care. They deprioritize information. So let's say that that's the national language. And yet on different teams of so the marketing team, the engineering team, the finance team, they're going to have their own preferred forms of respect, kind of depending on the leader and mm. also depending on the, fu the function of the work. And I call that regional dialects. Right. Right. And then even, and then even within that, there's like me, there's like, I can, I have my own individual preferences. So there's the individual, the team, and then the wider organization. Right. And those who do well are those who can speak multiple languages, mm, multiple dialects, right? like who can move between and who can also understand, like who can also flex. And so with the, um, uh, with the seven forms of respect, when I ask people, what does respect mean? They talk about the golden rule. So treat people the way you want to be treated. Then there's the platinum rule to treat people the way they want to be treated. And I, I actually have what I call now the rubber band rule. <laughs> and that's like, it's actually, we are flexible. We do stretch because it's like, oh, this back wants that. I'll do that. It's not a big deal, you know, but maybe I'm not going to do that for my am because I don't need to. <laughs> so, yeah. right. And like, and so we do stretch, but then sometimes we do things that if we do things that we don't like to do too long or too uncomfortable with, we will snap and break. So it's actually important to understand what are our internal breaking points, right? So like in Vietnam, like I am fed up with people coming late or like canceling last minute. So either I like, I'm just not gonna invite you anymore because that's my breaking point. Like, no, this relationship, like I'm just like, I'm not gonna call you anymore. That's my breaking point. Yeah. So, you know, you gotta know what your breaking points are. All of this sounds a lot like EQ to me. Yeah. Just like the, 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 the basis of EQ. Yeah. 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 It is so important to understand this because this is the crux. This is the, 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 the heartbeat of EQ, which is to understand, you know, this empathetic way of, of looking at it from the language of, of respect, from the and framework you know, of respect. And, you know, one of the things, even though when I was an academic, I loved big words. I love big, complicated concepts and yeah. just like, oh, here's the structure of experience or whatever. You know, I'd love that. And now I feel like I'm kind of going in reverse. Yeah. And I am a huge advocate for speaking plainly. Simplicity. And so I think about, I think about my parents. Um, right now, there's so much conversation around uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and microaggressions and privilege and all of these concepts that are actually pretty abstract. And I think about my parents and would they know that word? And so I remember there's a social worker who'd speak to my dad in a really loud voice. His voice would go up, right? And he's doing it because he can hear my dad has an accent. He thinks that he's, he's confusing it with, he's probably confusing it with like, oh, he's hard of hearing. And so I just said, hey, could you, my dad's hearing is fine. Could you actually lower your voice? Oh, shit. No, but what I didn't say was, this is a microaggression. That's my point here. Like, in, you know, yeah. I didn't say this was a microaggression. I just said what I needed. Right. And, and he was like, he agreed, you know, he was just like, okay, thank you for letting me know. Right. I didn't use that word with my dad. Cause then I would have had to explain it to my dad. And so I think, are we using words and thinking about accessibility? Like in terms of English accessibility, in terms of even education accessibility, like, and how often are we actually using big words 
as weapons. I was just going to say that. Yeah. You know, we're using big words as Julie, weapons. And that's why was... like, in, like in, in this book, I actually tried very hard to, to just t- tell simple examples and use plain language. And, um, and because I self-published this book, I didn't have to play by the uh, like publisher rules and editor's rules. So I'm like, Kenneth, I only had two footnotes and they were the same source. That is so liberating as someone who's a former mm-hmm. academic who used <laughs> to have to prove my self-worth with like hundreds mm-hmm. of footnotes, footnotes. right? And because it's like, at the end of the day, you know, you call this emotional intelligence. Some of this is just like common sense. Like, oh my God. Okay. So, <laughs> right. So. Yeah. But if you think, if you think about it now, the, the, the political climate in, in social media or wherever, they're all weaponized language. It's all weaponized. Privilege mm-hmm. denotes hierarchy, right? There's a somebody who hasn't, somebody who hasn't. That already creates a, some some yeah. distance. And, and so when I so when I'm running um, workshops, I tell people. I actually one of the working agreements: do not use jargon. Do not use the word privilege. If you want to use the word privilege, I ask you instead to tell me what that means to you. Does that mean your parents paid for college? Does that mean you grew up in a two-parent household? What does, does that mean? What does, does that mean you're mean? talking too loud? Yeah. And it's right. simple. Like, yeah. Like just like, does that mean that you have good hearing? Right. Like what is it? What are what are those things? And just be like to speak precisely and plainly about it and to tell stories because people remember those examples and those stories much more than they will remember privilege. In fact, what happens is people then go like, oh, they used a word that I don't know, but I don't want to ask because I think that I should know that word. And so then people's defenses kind of slowly build up, but they're not going to say anything because they also don't want to look stupid, right? Like I should know this. So that's, I think the, like the weaponization, I mean, there's what I call intellectual bullying that happens. And then there's just this subtle, um, uh, this subtle like setting up barriers. Yeah to people's to conversation, which I don't think needs to be there. But but that's what's happening with the corrosion in our communication society in the West. I think that is the, I, I'm going to walk away today feeling like that for me was the takeaway today is we have reduced these points of exactly what you were talking about with your father and, and this man who's speaking really loudly to microaggression to in in our efforts to shorthand to to create these shorthand communication words we've we've i don't know if it's intentional or unintentional but we've weaponized shorthand and i think that's playing into algorithms that are computer based and all of it together is destroying human connection yes and i think that curiosity is actually the anecdote to that. It's actually slowing down to ask the question and to recognize Mm -hmm. that whatever someone feels about, so I'll use the example of the question, um, where are you from? And so I know that uh, when, um, for many Asian Americans, when they're asked this question, it's like, it flares up, like you're telling me that I'm the perpetual foreigner, right? It's like, that's the signal. And for me, when I hear that, I'm, I'm just like, I tell people like, this is where I'm from. Like I was born in Vietnam. I grew up here. And then I turn, I'm like, so where are you from? Tell me about you. That's how I approach it. And I'm not dismissing people who get upset by hearing the question of where are you from? My point is we will have different reactions. 
And what has happened is I have white friends who are like, oh no, you never ask an Asian person, where are they from? That is off limits. That question is off limits. And it's actually like, no, some people actually invite that question and others are like, no, I don't like that question. And what we haven't learned is how to decline a question. Hmm. Instead, what we do is like, I can't believe you asked that question, which then goes into, there are certain things we can't say. De- declining a question is one thing. And then also how we ask the question, you know, there's, there's ways that we can ask the question. I mean, what if we just ask directly, but I think, I think th- it could be interpreted as segregation or, but even the word, the word trigger itself mm-hmm. comes from a part of a weapon, mm-hmm. you know? And so to be triggered by the question, where are you from? This is a lot to unpack. I mean, this is not going to happen in one podcast episode, but uh, I think we've started something that um, I I hope that American society, specifically American society, will, will will change as a result of what you're saying about this understanding of like respect has to be. We have to look at it a different way now. The shorthand is killing, it's killing us. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally killing us. Because mm-hmm. we throw around this word and we don't understand that we mean different things by it. And it's just like, you're disrespecting me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. And we don't yeah. say, well, what does that mean to you? We don't slow down to say like, hey, this is what I mean by respect. What do you mean by it? And we can, you know, we can, we can say that about other words too. We're just like not breaking it down and having that conversation. Instead, it's like, my belief versus your belief when there's actually all those assumptions are based on all these other assumptions. Julie, thank you so much. I've, uh, I've, I walk away from these podcasts learning so much and learning is one thing, like you can accumulate things that you learn, but like hearing things and it changes the way you see things. Uh, that's what happened to me in the last 15 minutes of, of, of this topic with you uh obviously i'm curious about your life and you know your your parents work and your brother's work but the last 15 minutes you know of our conversation here about especially that i'm gonna you know tell people about that story that you told me about um your father and and you know the idea of microaggression but just you know being more practical and simple about how we talk to people um and not complicate it with shorthand because shorthand is meant to to, to, to simplify, but it's actually, it, it complicates things. Kenneth, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm a fan of your podcast. I'm honored to be on this. And I'm honored to have you. Thank you. And I hope we, we can do it uh, again um, with the second book, third book that, that you put out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.